3: In today's episode of the Sixers Beat, Rich and I go over your 14-6 and six Philadelphia 76ers, including the recent wins over the Minnesota Timberwolves and the Los Angeles Lakers, where Joel Embiid looks like an MVP. As always, head on over to theathletic.com slash Sixers Beat if you're not already an Athletic subscriber, We can get 50% off of a yearly subscription. And also, if you can, leave us a rating or review on your podcast app of choice, especially on Apple Podcasts, if you could do that. We really appreciate it. Enjoy the podcast. All right. Welcome, everybody. This is Derek Bodner, joined once again by Rich Hoffman on the Sixers beat, a part of the Athletics Podcast Network. You're 14 and six Philadelphia 76ers. They are what now two games up on the entire Eastern Conference alone at the top, after wins over really the opposite ends of the spectrum in the Los Angeles Lakers and the Minnesota Timberwolves. How you doing, Rich? I'm okay,
0: man. Have you been noticing that the Sixers, after the Lakers win, have been getting some national, like, this is a finals preview buzz? Which They have. Look.
3: Which is funny, because us, the two local guys, are still like, well, pump the brakes, and national people are running with it. But that's fine.
0: yeah, they're one one and a half games up on the Brooklyn Nets. That is their uh their closest team. They've just uh they've played a lot more games than
3: Yeah. Or not a lot more
0: than, than some teams are catching up. But well, they're,
3: they're they're tied in the loss column with the second place team, right?
0: No, they're they're one game up on them. Okay. But but yeah, with the national buzz, it is funny that they do beat the Lakers and they, they played well in that game except for the final couple minutes, which we'll get to. But I'm not quite feeling it just yet. The the finals buzz. It feels like a team that is still a few pieces away, and also trying to figure out what they are going to be
3: down so they, the line. They came off of a great win against the Lakers and a dominant performance from Joel Embiid, which drew Shaq comparisons, which are destroying my Twitter experience. And you are going to come on here and be a carmudgeon?
0: No, I mean, like I, I just think it's. It's probably a little too soon, but the the start to the season has been awesome. And, you know, them beating the Timberwolves should not be any great prize. But considering how this team has let down against bad opponents in, in past years, for them to not only win, but to make it okay, like in the third quarter, let's put this thing out of reach early fourth. Let's not put Joe back in the game. That was good. That's what you're supposed to do
3: yeah, and so much of you know, it, it like so much of the way we discuss the team is centered around, are they one of the three to five best teams in the league that can realistically win the trophy? And I think that paints a picture of negativity that maybe is more than we actually feel. Like this is a good team with one of the best players in the world that's constructed well around him and has a pretty good base of talent around him. There's a lot to be happy about, including your MVP caliber. Big man who, I mean, look, that is no small development. Like we might not believe that they have the supporting pieces to win the Larry O'Brien trophy right now, but that development that he has taken was the absolute biggest step they needed to get on the path to winning that thing. So maybe we're still skeptical of whether or not they can do it this year, but the fact that he has made that jump is the biggest thing you can take away from this early going. But you just add in, it's just, it's such a weird year. It's like that Lakers game truly might be their one measuring stick game that we have. And we're 20 freaking games into the season. Like you should have more quality teams that you have played. And they would have, if it wasn't for COVID and the Miami heat and the Jason Tatum and the Boston Celtics and all of those, um, mitigating factors, it just leaves us as analysts in a spot where we have way less information than I would have ever expected 20 games in that being said. They have now won seven of their last nine games. Joel Embiid is looking better than he ever has. And, like, the MVP talk is not premature at this point. Like, you're you're not quite a third of the way into the season, but more than a a quarter. Like, you're a significant chunk. You know, Brett used to always break them up into thirds. You've got, like, maybe four more games, and you've got a legitimate third of the season gone. And Joel Embiid is putting up Shaq-like numbers. Like, legitimate, truthfully, Shaq-like numbers. Do you remember a couple of years ago, I think it was 2016 coming into the 2016, 17 season before MB had ever played a game. And Brett said two things that just blew me. Well, I had three takeaways from that. First of all, Brett started talking about politics and Trump and Mike Preston, the PR manager at the time looked like he was about to have a heart attack uh, because that is not what he wanted to come away from that. Um, <laughs> that, that luncheon that we had uh, in we, the, we had some political
0: discussions off the, uh, off the record.
3: Yeah. And say, Preston however. was, was very nervous. Um, the other one was, he was like, Joel Embiid is my, he, he's my focal point offensively. And I think at that time, we were like, hey, he shows some real potential at Kansas. Uh, but that was a, a project he probably shouldn't be a focal point right away. Well, it turns out Brett was right about that. The other comment he made, he called him Shaq with soccer feet. And I will never forget that as a description for Embiid. And right now, you are watching Shaq with soccer feet. Um, not as physically dominant. He's not trucking people in the post like Shaq would, but it's pretty gosh darn close. And that is like watching this all come together is great. It is great.
0: You really do feel his size on a a night-to-night basis. Like the the Timberwolves, they did not have Carl Towns. They did not have their backup center either, I don't think, although I didn't do the research to know who that is. I'm not sure that would have made a difference either. But they were put in a situation where – Ed Davis and Jared Vanderbilt were the two guys <laughs> having to guard him and you know I think it was uh I think it was Rob Perez on Twitter he he made the point he's like think about all of these guys in the NBA like you're if you make the NBA you're probably Mr. Basketball from your state you were a division 1 player you were just jumping over people for your whole career and then you get to the NBA and you play against Joel Embiid And it feels like a bug against a windshield where, (laughs) I mean, he shot terrible in the first half last night. I mean, it was four of 12 from the field, which for him is terrible just because every shot is fairly easy. He's getting great looks and he just didn't have the touch, but he got to the line 12 times and he said it after the game. That's how you stay efficient. And I mean, it's, it's amazing. What was the, uh, what was the stat you had on Twitter that uh, uh, that's ruining this. your mentions? Uh, at
3: least people can't yell at me through podcasts like they did through through Twitter. Uh, so he's currently averaging 28.3 points per game on a 66.9% true shooting. Shaq had five seasons where he averaged at least 28 points per game. And his true shooting percentage, I forget exactly what they were, but they're all between 57 and 60%. So you're talking about Embiid with like legitimate 6 to 10% better true shooting on a, on a, a similar usage rate than what prime Shaq had. And a lot of people like went off on that and, Oh, he, here's Shaq's accomplishments. No shit. I'm just pointing out how efficient Joel has been so far this she, season while comparing him to maybe the only one that even plays remotely similar style to him. And then people are like, Oh, well he shoots a three and Shaq. Well, yeah. There's no direct comparison. I'm sorry. The games evolved. all um, my favorite response to that, by the way, was people being like, Oh, well, but that's only because Joel makes his free throws. And it's like, well yeah okay let's... that's sort of the point like that's an, a key part of efficiency especially for people who get there that often um but my only real point there is that big men especially like seven foot two post-up primary post-up options do not have this kind of efficiency and it was pointed out to be by mike lynch uh who works for um what do they call themselves stat says now used to be basketball reference sports reference uh, the only 25 plus point per game score with a 65% true shooting percentage in NBA history besides Joel Embiid so far this year, Steph Curry. Uh, so pretty rarefied air, whether you can even take away that post-up center qualification. It's pretty rare what he is doing now. Look, this is sort of where like you and I tend to be like a flat line. Uh, if we were, um, you know, heart rate monitor, we'd, we'd be dead. Like we don't go up and down as quickly as fans. It, it makes sense. It's sort of our job, both as analysts and as reporters. Is he going to continue making like 60-whatever percent from the mid-range? No. No. Is he going to end up making probably 40% from three? Probably not. I think he he might be improved as a three-point shooter, but he could drop a couple percentage points here. Uh, So will he maintain this level of efficiency? Probably not. Like, there's still, you know, we've still got 52 games to go, and this is pretty crazy, the shooting numbers. I think a lot of the post-up stuff can carry over. Some of the shooting numbers are, like, -like, Dirk-like, and he's as good as he is. I'm not sure he's Dirk but i think uh, i think he's going to end up with a huge scoring average that's really really special levels of efficiency and this could be a i mean this could be an mvp caliber season for sure for sure
0: but he's in such a rarefied air
3: he could drop 5% he could, on his he could drop and still be a special, lot
0: so. and still have a really super high level of efficiency which is awesome i think uh it is crazy when you bring up those numbers, though, compared to Shaq, because I, I always thought Shaq was maybe a little more efficient than that. And by the way, Shaq, he
3: basically,
0: he played when I was a kid, for the most part.
3: Well, and he was one of the
0: most dominant players I've ever seen. And he
3: always led the league in, like, field goal percentage. And when you see him dunking on dudes for 60% of the game, like, our understanding of what efficient basketball hadn't yet completely caught up to the value of, hey, that shot, you know, 24 feet out is actually worth more points, and making your free throws helps. Um, So it's easy. Look, he was insanely efficient for what he was. It's just NBA having a little more diverse of a game helps him in that regard.
2: This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more.
0: Well, the bar has been raised for what an efficient player is, too, yeah. with what the Hardens and the Curries and the Durants and all of these guys on the perimeter are doing, which in Shaq's era was Iverson taking mid-range jumpers, Kobe taking mid-range jumpers, you know, it's that type of thing, McGrady. Um, so the, the, the bar has been raised. The point is that Embiid is clearing that bar right now right. fairly easily, which is ridiculous.
3: There, uh, I mean, the things that you just brought up are why post-up centers are so... Out of the league. And Embiid is not only the one exception, he is beating the little men in a little man's game. It's it's really impressive. It's really impressive.
0: He's probably going to have like a rough first half the next time they play on TNT, and Shaq's going to be like, well, he doesn't want it enough. You don't want it. Get in the post. Uh, you know, one of those things. <laughs> but uh, he's been unbelievable. I mean, MVP of the league so far, to me... Like I know Jokic's numbers are unbelievable. His efficiency is crazy, too. I know LeBron is leading a great team. Like, if you're voting today and Embiid's not the MVP, I, sometimes I get mad at Sixers fans when they don't take stock of the rest of the league when it comes to voting. And, hey, it's like these other guys are putting up these massive numbers, too. You know, like he, the national media, they're not biased against the Sixers. They're just voting for the other people if if we were we're done today, Joe is the MVP. It's not really that close, in my opinion. And, uh, the good news for him, too, is it's often, like, a narrative-based award, like, who tells the best story. He's telling a pretty good story with, uh, you know, never being up at this level, struggling a little last year, at least for him, and then the team really struggling. So, it's, uh, it's been awesome. I'm, uh, Really, the only concern with him is uh, is the back okay, and uh, on a night to night basis. But everything else, he's he's got to figure it out right now.
3: Yeah, I mean, some of your other, I mean, t- to me, it, it, it's and it seems premature to be talking about this, but um, LeBron's the only other real major contender, and I think, I mean, it's LeBron James. You can make a case for him pretty much any other time. Jokic and Doncic are putting up MVP caliber numbers.
0: Doncic, get out of here.
3: Uh, you're eight and eleven you, right now. Your team and, sucks. Uh, like it's it's is that his fault probably not but that is part of the award for sure
0: Um, hey i said this about joe last year when he didn't make an all nba
3: team i was like well the team is disappointing and that's that's probably well guess what now you get the opposite bump yeah for sure for sure he is he is he is right there and i mean when you start looking at some of the advanced metrics with Embiid, and this you can go back and look at some of these like he's putting up 0.301 win shares per 48 minutes that's absurd that is yeah. absurd. His his advanced whenever
0: w- whenever you get into the twos on basketball yeah. reference on that that's like wow he's playing really he's, well. He's
3: in the threes. That that's is a guy that when, is.
0: when you when you hit the threes it's LeBron. It's like Steph MVP seasons. It's Harden. And,
3: and when you say LeBron like LeBron's done that twice.
0: Yeah, like that's no, not that's even a like, typical
3: LeBron year. That's the best. No, of the those best. are the
0: ones that stand out yes. in LeBron's storied career. Yeah. yeah, it's uh, it's hard to do, and he's not going to keep it up. But that's okay. No,
3: no, he's not. That's okay, because he's so far into the absurd category that he, there's some regression built in, and, and he'll be okay. Um, like you mentioned, though, going back to the game against the Wolves, uh, Nas Reed, um, their their backup center, who's Nas Reed, undersized, but he's he's built. Um, he could have helped. He would have had no chance against him no, either. No, but <laughs> the 215-pound Jared Vanderbilt certainly didn't have a chance. No. So, uh, yeah, that was a, a, a matchup. And like you mentioned at the beginning, first first half, really, he was getting his shots. He was... Just missing like shots. Going in. He makes, yeah. Yeah. And like you said, he, he was getting the free throw line. Uh, I mean, he came right out and he was like, this is how you maintain a uh, consistency, which is part of the reason why I'm so impressed with Tobias Harris, because he's very much not getting the free throw line and he's <laughs> still being been consistent uh, on a related note. That's why I'm a little more worried about Tobias Harris's regression coming up here because he doesn't do things like get to the free throw line or really set up his teammates. But I mean, shit, he's gone 20 games and he's making every shot. So I can't like, can't worry too much, I guess. But yeah, I'm getting in line 12 times or whatever in the first half. It's just, it's incredible. It's incredible. Two, two to thoughts. combine that physical dominance with that intellect on drawing the fouls, it's it's really tough to guard.
0: Yeah. Two, two thoughts on that, um, on his performance against the Wolves specifically. To start the third quarter, it wasn't five possessions in a row, but it was pretty close to it. Five possessions in a row, five post-touches, which again— is it a post-touch Post, if he catches yeah. it 15 feet from the hoop and then faces up? I don't know. But with his back turned to the basket when he catches it. And he scored 10 points. And two of the, or, uh, two points off a, off a foul on a drive, three just hitting a jumper in a guy's face. And that is part of the intellect we're talking about. Because he mentioned this last night after the game. If you reach your hand in, he will draw the foul on you one way or another but guys like you could see Ed Davis with 3 fouls in that third quarter you know he he wants to reach for the ball but as soon as Joe goes goes up for the shot his arms are at his waist at the end yeah. of it that is you know obviously like Joe's mid-range shooting is an aberration it's it's a little bit further than it's going to be like there's going to be some regression but it's an easy shot once he gets it going. Like he sure. knows a lot of these guys aren't even going to try to block it because they are so deathly afraid of the foul. And he also talked about how, you know, he can use his leverage and back a person down whose hands are at his, uh, um, at, at his waist. But you know, for him, that's a great shot right now where he could just pop from about twelve feet and knock it in. He's been uh he's he's got it all working the the other thing I was thinking too, just in general with the ten points in a row on the post ups he's had like seven or eight stretches of that that is not common so uh for a player to get the ball five times in a row and score ten points like that is not yeah. common. He did that in the Washington game to get them back the the opening game he did that in that crazy heat game. That might have been more than 10 points on, on five possessions in the third quarter where he was just dominant. He puts together these stretches that are like, it's so crazy for a big guy to be doing that. I associate that with Curry making a bunch of threes. right? But no, it's him just casually pulling his way to the basket, popping jumpers in guys' faces. It is, I, I mean, I, I don't know how many ways we can put it. What he is doing is so rare right now.
3: Yeah, and I mean, I mean, Doc sort of even spoke about it before the game. He's like, look, we we're on a play. It works. We're going right back to it. And he's like, I don't care if the opposing coach knows that. Like, that's just the way I've always been. And right now when you've got a guy like Embiid, where when he's in a zone like that, there's no good option. Like, you can send the double team, but he's been making the right reads out of that, especially when he's facing up. Uh, you, can, you can try to cover him one-on-one, but like, LOL, Jared Vanderbilt. Like, I don't know what you do right now, especially mm-hmm. when he's making that 17-foot of the way he is.
0: I think teams are getting more afraid of doubling him too. Like I think the early season tape got out on him, and to be clear, that's going to be their best option moving forward. Because if he's scoring on Marc Gasol now, that's that's the final boss. That's like that's (laughs) the last person. I don't think anybody can handle him one on one. So so if he can handle Gasol one on one. Everybody is going to have to double him in one way or another, but you can tell the teams that there's, there's pain involved yeah. with them doing it.
3: Because, you really saw that with the Pistons game when they tried that first game to cover him one-on-one. It was like, what are you doing? You have no chance.
0: But they took away the three-point line in that Did game, it? which which gave them a little bit of a chance. First half,
3: it was right there. Yep.
0: In a, uh, in a weird game. But you could see, like, I think the tape is out on him that it's like, man, we really have to time our double team right because if, if we do not come correct and have – the right pre rotations, like he's going to create a wide open three for a good shooter. And that's not good.
3: Yeah. (sighs) All right. Where do we want to go from there? I thought the other main takeaway other than, um, I I guess two main takeaways, uh, first Matisse Stiebel specifically, but also just that bench unit with Tobias really pushing the lead in the, what was the beginning of fourth quarter? I think when there's still a chance that Joe could come back to the game uh, and extend his minutes, they, they had a real nice run there to close it out. I guess we can go to Theibel and then we can go to Harris's fit with that bench mob. You know, it is, I, I forget exactly how many steals he ended up with Thibol in that game, two or three. Uh, I think five, three steals and two stocks. blocks, something like that. Yes. Yeah. He had his hands on everything. It was really impressive to see some of those rear contest shots that we spent all of the beginning of last season talking about came real into play last night. And he was just a pesk. And he is such a... To me, he's he's maybe the most frustrating person on a team, because when he shows what wow. he can do like that, it's just like holy shit, this can change a team's defense. Like, it, it, not only that, but it can like actually like get teams out in transition too. And it's so fun to watch, and it adds such a dynamic to their defense. Um, and then he has games where it's just like, what are you doing offensively? Like, if they can just yeah. get him to a baseline level of competency. I, I'd love to be able to pencil him in to a rotation. Uh, and last night, I think, really showed why there's so much intrigue around him.
0: So, so the he's way had a I couple would,
3: good games in a row, too. It wasn't just last night.
0: Well, the way I would put it is that he has a lot of games where defensively, I'm like, wow, you, you're, you're locked in. You're really making the plays that you just mentioned, the crazy point of attack plays and getting your hands on balls. But when you run down to the other end of the court, I'm thinking, what are you doing offensively? <laughs> yeah. And he is, man, he is really pushing the envelope of a defense first player <laughs> at this point. His offensive numbers suck.
3: Oh, it wasn't even good last night. It's not even like he's making shots right now.
0: Yeah, Dude, What what is he? He's averaging like four points a game on like 43% true shooting or something like that. It oh, is okay.
3: Uh, 2.8 points per game on... Oh, it's even uh, down. Uh, 41.3% true shooting, yeah. Yep. Oh man, that's not good. That but, is on. Un-
0: that's that's borderline unplayable. But for some reason, the Sixers have this weird. I mean, I mean that like offensively, that definitely is unplayable.
3: Yeah, he might end up with a higher steal percentage and block percentage than assist percentage, which is just I've never seen. He might even. Uh, he's getting close. He's a four point three percent steal rate. block and a 10% usage. It's like unfathomable. I've never seen a wing like him.
0: So, yeah, I mean like that's really bad, but for some reason in this weird sixer season, he, he has his role on defense and you know, there are games I, I would say really the last three, I think he's had a good week defensively. Yep. On uh on Monday he frustrates Blake in what was an otherwise crappy game for the Sixers. That was probably the high point. <laughs> getting Blake to two hand shove him because he was denying him so well. And then on on Wednesday he played against LeBron. He got a lot of love after the game. I wasn't like you know, it, he didn't frustrate LeBron. He right. he did an admirable job, I guess, you know. He definitely uh I remember him bad foul jumping into him for three. He actually he did a better job, I think, on LeBron last year. He Snuck behind him three times for steals in that uh, in that crazy January win they had, but then I mean against Ricky Rubio and D'Angelo Russell, he was a monster. And Ricky Rubio is not playing that well this year defensively. That's speak or offensively. Speaking of another bad offensive player, um, but Matisse made his life absolute hell. And I totally agree with you that you know regardless of my reservations of his offense. When Matisse has it going on defense and he's creating all of this havoc, it is just fun to watch. <laughs> like, I, I enjoy it, and it's certainly there's a quality that I've always associated with him that it, it's an intangible that when he gets a couple steals and he gets a jump ball because on a rear view contest, he swallows a guy's shot. Which is no, really, yeah. which is really rare.
3: Like, that doesn't happen. No, no. I remember um, the first time, first his first game his rookie year, he tried that on Kemba Walker. And Kemba Walker's like, dude, I've got way too much stuff in my bag of tricks for this. What are you doing? And then, like, by the second quarter, he had, like, adjusted and, and gotten that rearview contest. And you're right, a jump ball on a guy shooting a jump shot when he thinks he has it. a wide open shot, it's it's incredible. It's incredible. By the same time, And I mean...
0: It's it's a high risk style because there are still times when he'll foul a guy You're on right. three point attempts. Which
3: Kemba Walker will still figure that out, yeah.
0: Yep. And the guys, really, I mean, it's most guards in the league will have the the three point shot. I think Marcus Smart got him on it once. Although to be fair, Marcus Smart when he does it, it's it doesn't look good. Like he he's physically jumping back into you, and I wonder if the refs like that. That's a Fairly high level of BS, but most guards have the play where they will dribble literally right off the screen. They will not get an inch of separation off the guy's back, and Matisse will run into the guy because he thinks he's contesting a normal basketball play, and he's not. Um, but when he's got it going, it's it's awesome. I you know despite the the offensive struggles, and you wrote about this this week a little bit, but and it's it's been a lot of the chatter on, on Twitter playing him Simmons and Howard together in the long run. That's whatever the, the level of shooting that you need to survive. I think that's probably below it. Um,
3: Probably. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a fair, fair statement. uh, And look, I don't think, I don't think that trio played last night, large part because I mean, Embiid played and you didn't need that many minutes from Dwight. He wasn't starting like he previously was. And, and it was a blowout in the second half. So Simmons wasn't playing all that much either. Uh, but, it does concern me how frequently they've gone to that. And look, I expect that group to defend better than they have. But, I mean, you need something. Like, I mean, Mat- Matisse right now, almost two-thirds of his shots are on threes. And he's shooting like 22% from three. Like, that's just not really... it. it it's such a tough player to figure out what to do with. <laughs> Just and a then, tough player.
0: <laughs> then you have Ben, who's
1: the but tough superstar. I don't, don't
3: really want to play him next to Joel because spacing so important. I don't know what the answer truly is.
2: Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.
0: The the best answer was the lineup they had last season, where they had Ben, but they had Horford too. Yeah. That's the lineup. That is where you want to play Matisse.
3: That, uh, uh, That Horford isn't on the team, Rich. I know,
0: I know. But you know what?
3: That's okay. Which, by it's... the way, good move. You had to get rid of him. I don't don't misinterpret. Like, don't don't aggregate me and you know, don't windy me here. Uh, the trade had to be made. But um, they I, I go back, going back to our point last podcast and our point before the season. A a stretch five would really help this team.
0: Yeah. So I I don't know what exactly to do with Matisse except just keep playing him and hope maybe some of these threes go in at some point. I mean, he's a better shooter than a twenty two percent. Yep. Three-point shooter, I just, it's the opposite effect of Joel, though. It's, okay, Joel is going to regress, but he's been so good that he can afford to regress and still be at a very acceptable level. Matisse is going to regress back to the mean in another way, but he's so bad right now that I wonder just what is the end product? Is that something we are all that comfortable with moving forward? And I'm not sure about that, but I, I guess the best way to just watch Matisse is just just enjoy the the games where he's got it going on defense. And and he's had a few of those over the past few games for sure.
3: Yeah, it's just, and look, three point shooters are streaky. You're never going to have a guy who shoots 36% every week. It's just, that's not how shooting works. Matisse seems extra streaky though. Like, if you remember last year, beginning of the year, he couldn't make a shot. Middle of the year, he made every shot. Like, he legitimately went like 15 games where he was shooting over 50% from three. His and December, the the year, he couldn't was make a awesome. shot again. Yeah. So it's just when he's in these funks where he can't buy a perimeter shot, it's real tough to consistently play him. And I want to consistently play him because of his development and also because of his defense. Um, And look, the Sixers are doing a real nice job of getting out in transition this year. I thought, you know, I think when you start looking at the math, I think a drop coverage, especially a deep drop like the Sixers played last year, there's reasoning behind it. One of the things I always thought it hurt Big time was their ability to force turnovers and get out in transition. Um, And they're doing real good at that dish. They're not, and we mentioned this before they're not a super aggressive pick and roll team, but they're a little more aggressive and that's led to some breakouts. Matisse can jumpstart that in a big way, but my God, he needs to make shots. That's
0: he needs to make shots. And it's tough because when you put the ball in his hands, it's always, there's a, there's a dicey element to it. Like what, what's going to happen with this right now? Uh He actually, On a fast break, I thought that against the the Timberwolves, it was him and Danny Green leading a fast break. And I was thinking like, oh, man, this isn't going to end up good. And you know what? They did a nice job. He he passed to Danny, and Danny pitched it back to Ben for a dunk because the Timberwolves are bad, and they handled it pretty well. A uh,
3: Matisse-Danny Green fast break is like putting you and me on a podcast. Just not a great idea. Not a great idea.
0: So uh, By the way, I agree with you with with the pace. I thought, honestly, one of the underrated things in that Lakers win was Ben Simmons at the beginning of the game. He didn't do it the entire game, but he was able to push the pace and they were able to get easy buckets, whether that was Ben, whether that was Joe against AD in the cross match. By the way, Joe should, uh, when he is campaigning for first-team All-NBA center, if he really wants to get the the shit talk to another level. He needs to point out that Anthony Davis does not guard him in these games. How are you going to be the first team all center when you don't do that?
3: Yeah. Yeah. I I did think that was one mistake that Doc made at the beginning of the game is not having Embiid guard AD um, and having Harris try to guard him, especially when we, we saw, you know, just a year and a half ago that Harris can hold up against Gasol in the post. And you still have, you still have people on your staff who were there for that series. I was surprised they came out and they let Gasol um, pull and beat away from the basket, and look. Some of those, like some of those early backdoor cuts, like yeah, those were opened up by Gasol. But like Ben fell asleep on a couple of those. Tobias on one things. too, yeah. Um, where it wasn't even like he was being overly aggressive. He just he fell asleep for a second, and LeBron took the opportunity.
0: Why? Are, um, yeah. Why are you denying LeBron at the three yeah. point line too? Like he's going to get the ball one way or another. Let him let him catch it. Don't get right. beat backdoor for a twenty
3: seven feet from the basket. Yeah. So that, but just the fact that they came out with that, and I think you brought up a good point in your article, you're upon for the review. Maybe it was just to try to keep him beat out of foul trouble. That's the biggest. But I think sometimes people just look at at size, and they're like, "Well, Tobias can't guard Gasol. He's got five inches yeah, on him. He
0: absolutely can guard well, Gasol.
3: Let him back him down. That's fine. That's fine. And like I said, we saw that a couple of years ago. Um,
0: Gasol is going to shoot thirty percent on hook shots over Tobias. It's not a big deal. Yeah. And he's does he doesn't want to do it either too like I, I was thinking I mean honestly I was like kind of losing my mind when they were scoring all those points at the beginning and, and just racking my brain to that Toronto series if if Gasol made one jump hook against Tobias do you think he would do it again on the next possession
3: I don't think he would no I don't think he doesn't he would do like either. he doesn't like doing it He wants he wants to facilitate facilitate the offense from the high post that's what he wants to do Uh that's what he would to do in his prime and certainly what he wants to do now all right moving on to some of the bench units you know you've, you've pretty much had your main bench pieces uh milton maxi i think now corkmaz you would put in that group and howard with one of the sixers to or one of the sixers remaining starters almost always in tobias harris or ben simmons joining that group Doc has been lamenting the loss of Mike Scott more than I've ever heard a coach lament the loss of Mike Scott. Uh, He cannot go a press conference without bringing up how much of a bind not having Mike Scott puts (laughs) them in. Which I don't know if Mike Scott was ever this important to a rotation even going back to Virginia. It really is. um,
0: (laughs) By the way, he's still not. He's not this important. No,
3: he's not. He's not. He's not. Um, Doc really wants a a 6'8 to 6'10 for to put in that uh put in that spot. <laughs> and even so, I think I think this is like the defending the four I think is both Simmons and Harris natural position anyway. Uh so I don't I don't mind that or not natural cuz Ben's so versatile, but they're both more than comfortable capable of defending that spot in today's NBA. By the way, th- Doc keeps bringing
0: up the position. I honestly think the better argument for Mike Scott
3: playing Spacing. is that he can shoot. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Nope. Uh but I mean he he's basically sending a message to Daryl Morey every time he says that. So look for the Sixers to acquire another big man uh before the trade deadline. But going back to those bench units with a starter and looking at some of these numbers, the bench unit with uh Fibel and Harris has a plus 8.6 with um where am I? Nope, I lost it. But, I mean it I are look- playing pretty well. They're playing pretty well.
0: I looked at a lot of the numbers in the the Simmons and Har- They have the Simmons and Harris dichotomy right now, where, because Mike Scott is not in, Doc has been fairly militant of, okay, half of these all-bench minutes, Ben has to be on the court at all times, and half of these all-bench minutes, Tobias has to be on the floor at all times. And by the way, congratulations to Tobias Harris. You have now reached alpha dog status when it comes to setting the Sixers rotation. Will that last for the entire season? I'm not sure. But right now, <laughs> you are one of the three best players, and Doc has made it a point to say, I want one of you on the court at all times. So I don't have the numbers in front of me right now, but those Tobias-only units have been good, but they've been good in a weird way. They've yeah. been good because they're defending well.
3: They're, they're averaging 98 points per 100 possessions, <laughs> which is but atrocious.
0: They're, but they're still on top because they're... Stopping Defense, teams at 89. a better rate, yep. which is yep. some small sample size theater and yeah. all that stuff. But yeah, you would normally think like, okay, the, the Ben units would have to be better defensively and the Tobias units better offensively. The Ben units are just bad at everything right now. So, and that is also some some small sample size stuff. But uh, yeah, I mean, until Mike Scott returns, it's pretty clear that Doc is is telling Tobias and Ben, one, one of you is going to play 40 minutes tonight.
3: Yeah. And even with um you know even uh, so I I guess moving back like when Mike Scott comes back I wouldn't mind seeing that stagger the star stagger with Harris um maintain uh, not all the time because you don't want Harris playing huge minutes but I like having another option there with Maxi and Milton to create some offense and I think Tobias has filled in well with this role Tobias has sneakily usually been more efficient when Embiid has been off the floor. Anyway, uh, I think adjusting to that post up heavy game hasn't always been a hundred percent natural to him, but I think that lineup has looked pretty good. And if that can help stabilize a bench unit, which still quite frankly is extremely young. Like when you start looking at contenders, um, once you get past white Howard, like all of the Sixers core bench players are pretty young and pretty inexperienced and pretty unproven in a playoff atmosphere having Tobias with that group rather than a pure 100% bench lineup. And look, I think when they got to the playoffs, they were always going to change the staggers a little bit. I think this is a pretty natural change to make. But I do hope Mike Scott comes back soon, in part for the spacing, and in part because then I don't have to hear Doc mention his absence <laughs> literally every every press conference. He's
0: not going to bring out, hit him up once when he's actually playing. <laughs> right. he, made a, he made a couple threes tonight. But
3: whenever Mike Scott's like, man, I was so ass with Doc last time, i got to be better this year meanwhile he's indispensable it's, it's an amazing development
0: yeah you know they've they've grown close together and mike scott the only thing he's done this week is get a technical from the bench while wearing a polo and a, uh, a and, a and mask. jeans yep. while uh, while arguing with josh jackson who looked like he was willing to argue with anybody um yeah it seems right. like it's a pretty good place to
3: yeah moving on it. we have the Pacers and then the Hornets to wrap up this little three game road trip. Then two at home with the Blazers and Nets and then another four game Western conference road trip, which you and I would typically be on, but we are not this year because COVID and traveling, but it is a, and look, they're 16 and four game and a half up on the East. Good place to be in. Eventually the schedule will get 16 and four. They're not 16 and four. They're, 14-6. Fourteen and six. Sorry, I'm dyslexic. Sometimes it happens. It happens. It happens. It happens. Uh, they're in a good spot. Uh, where are we? Twelfth in offense, fifth in defense. Um, yeah, we'll see. I mean, look, the takeaway is Embiid's great, and everything else is easier to put around him when that is true.
0: If they could just get one of these two next games, that's that's a successful road trip, and that is how you get one of the top seeds. You know, like last year. It's like we baseball. Were, Win we two out t- of
3: three in a series.
0: last year, Yeah, and especially win two out of three on the road. Last year when they're just, I mean, they're losing four in a row on the road at three different times. It's no bueno. But yeah.
3: uh, And Charlotte's they, struggling. Like, Charlotte had a, had a run there a couple weeks ago where they looked like they might be semi-competent, uh, but they have been struggling here of late. So they, they should have a, a real chance to accomplish that, for sure. For sure. All right. Thank you, Rich, for jumping on, and we will talk to you soon.
0: See you, man.